I don't know uh, what comes to mind for you uh, when you hear the word lost, lost. For me, what immediately comes to mind is the hit series TV show, Lost. Anyone with me? Have, have any of you seen that show? Yeah, a handful of you. This was a series that came out that ran, uh, I believe it was from around 2004 to 2010. Uh, it's on Netflix now, so you can watch all you want, and, and it's a phenomenal show. It's about a group of people that got stranded on an island after a plane crash, and after every episode, you ended up feeling lost. I mean, you, you, were, you were left in absolute confusion. I mean, how is there a polar bear in the middle of an island? I mean, what's this black smoke? And who are the others? And all of these things. It left you feeling lost upon watching this show Lost. And yet, I got to tell you, I loved every moment of it. I, was, I didn't know what was going on at the time, but I loved it. That's something that comes to mind. Another thought that comes to mind for me when I hear the word lost is when I lost my mom at the Staten Island Mall. Uh, I grew up in New York City and we used, we used to go to the Staten Island Mall, you know, because there wasn't a whole lot to do, you know, on Staten Island. So I remember, you know, we were, we were going to the Staten Island Mall and I turned back around to look for my mom and she is nowhere to be found. Now, you know, as a little seven, eight year old, when you lose a parent in a public place, sheer panic comes over you. I mean, have, have any of you been there? You've lost a parent like in a public space or right at a park, at a grocery store. It's like you think to yourself, well, I lived a pretty good life up to this point. As a seven-year-old, I mean, I, 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 I played with all the toys I wanted to play with. I mean, I did all that I wanted to do. Now, now my life is over, you know, because I can't find my parents. And uh, maybe for you, you've been there. You've been lost before. Uh, maybe you haven't lost a parent uh, in a public place like that. Maybe you got lost as an adult when you were on your way to some place, right? How, how many of you have gotten lost directionally, right? Navigationally, right? You know, like you gotten lost on, on your way to some party or some function. And I got to tell you, one of the things I hate more than anything in this world is getting lost. I mean, it, it, it just drives me nuts. I hate it. All that time of being lost is just wasted time, and I hate that. I hate that. Can anyone say amen to that with me, right? Amen, right? It, being lost is just terrible. Now, I think we can all agree that to be lost is not a good feeling. To be lost is not a good thing, whether it's being stuck on an island after a plane crash or losing your parent amidst of a massive crowd or losing your way when you're on your way to some place. To be lost is not a good feeling. You see, the kind of loss that Jesus is talking about here in Luke chapter 15 is a different kind of loss. It's a far different kind of loss that Jesus portrays for us here when he talks about loss, to be lost. It's a more serious kind of lostness. It was a kind of loss that carried far greater implications on our lives than just mere feelings of inconvenience or discomfort or even fear. Now, not that any of those are invalid, but the kind of loss that Jesus was talking about carried far greater implications than those things. You see, according to scripture, Jesus here in Luke chapter 15 is talking about a spiritual kind of lostness. To be spiritually lost, and according to the Bible, to be spiritually lost is the most tragic kind of loss there is, the most devastating kind of lost one can be. And because of that, Jesus gives us three back-to-back -back consecutive parables, stories to portray this spiritual lostness. Now, let's just clarify, before, before we even jump into the text here, let's just clarify for a moment, what do we mean by lost? 
I mean, for those of you who have never grown up in the church, you know, that might, that might strike you as an odd term to, to be, to be lost, right? In fact, it might even strike you as a little bit offensive to, to, to call someone lost. You know, I, I, I am offended when my wife tells me I am lost. Baby, I'm not lost. I know exactly where I am. I, I know where I'm going. You don't need to tell me that I'm lost. It's offensive. And so for, for some of us who grew up in the church, we may think of, to be spiritually lost? Yeah, I, I know what that means. But maybe there's some of us in here. What do we mean when we say spiritually lost? You see, when we refer to those who are spiritually lost, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about those who have no knowledge of who God is. That's what it means to be spiritually lost. To be spiritually lost, we're talking about those who have no relationship with Christ. No active, ongoing relationship with Christ. We're talking about those who have not committed their life to following after Jesus, who have not bowed their knee to the lordship of Christ. That's that's spiritually lost. To be spiritually lost, we're talking about those who are not impacted or changed on the inside by the Holy Spirit of God. The theological and doctrinal term here would be regenerated or born again, as Jesus talks about in John chapter 3. Those of us who have not been impacted or changed by the Holy Spirit of God from the inside out. To be spiritually lost, we're talking about those who have not submitted their will to the will of God. We're talking about those who are living for themselves as opposed to living for God. In short, here's what we're talking about. Spiritually lost people are those who are living outside of the biblical framework of full submission to Christ. That's what we're talking about. When we talk about people who are spiritually lost, we're not trying to be offensive. We're not trying to be derogatory or anything like that. From a biblical framework, from a biblical standard, here's what we're talking. Spiritually lost people are those who are living outside. And there are a lot of people in this world, maybe even in this room, who are living outside of the biblical framework Okay, a full submission to Christ. You see, according to scripture, partial submission is no submission at all. How many of you know you can't partially die to your sins? You can't partially be alive to Christ. You can't partially pick up your cross. You can't partially follow Jesus. You see, the nature of the Christian faith is one of full submission, whole submission, complete submission to Christ. And those who do not fully submit are identified as, according to Scripture, lost people. I didn't come up with that, okay? that's, that's, That's in here. Now, that still doesn't answer the question why Jesus uses the terminology lost. Right, why not use, why not use another term? Like, you know, just, just the others, right? They just go lost. The, the others or the other guys, right? Like that, that, that other group of people. Why does Jesus use the terminology lost? In fact, some churches and some Christian circles have abandoned that terminology and that vernacular and they've adopted a different term. And so they use words like the unchurched or the irreligious or those who are far from God. All of that is communicating spiritually lostness. Everything that that is communicating is what it means to be spiritually lost. But why does Jesus use a particular term? Now, I can't possibly explain this in one minute. And so I'm going to ask as a church, you extend the grace and just give me two minutes. Okay, let let me just try to break this down in, in two minutes. If you are in here and you are alive, you are breathing, 
You have air in your lungs. You have a pulse. In fact, just go ahead and pinch the person next to you. Just go ahead right now. Just pinch the person next to you. If they responded to that in some form or another, they are alive. They have breath in their lungs. Now, here's what this means. At our core level, as living, breathing human beings, you and I are hardwired and designed, whether you believe in a designer, a maker, a creator or not, you and I all have this element in us a desire and a longing to worship something or someone. Now, that might sound a little bit odd if you don't come from a church background. I, you, I don't, Dan, I, I, don't, I don't worship anything. I, I'm not someone who worships. Now, we got to take that out of the context of a church service, out of the religious circles. Worship is simply attaching worth to something. Worship, when we say we worship something or someone, what we're saying is that we intrinsically, as human beings, have a tendency, I have a propensity to attach worth to something or someone. Again, it doesn't matter, you, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not, a person of faith or not. We all, as living, breathing human beings, have this tendency in, inside all of us, this innate tendency to attach worth to something or someone. Now, that could be anything. For me, I attach worth to my wife, to my kids. I attach incredible value. I, I bestow incredible value upon my family. That's why I say I would do anything for my family. I, I work for my family. I love my family. I would give my time, my energies, my resources, my life for my family. I attach worth to my family. Now, maybe for you, you don't have kids, you don't have a wife. Maybe it's your roommate. Maybe it's your best friend. Maybe it's your, you know, your significant other, your boyfriend or girlfriend. You attach worth to that person. Maybe for you, it's not that you attach worth to someone. Maybe you attach worth to something. Maybe it's your career. And because you attach worth to your career, you attach worth to your GPA. And because you attach worth to your GPA, you attach worth and value to your studies. And so you spend time, you, you pour energy and effort towards your studies. Why? Because you value and attach worth to your career. Maybe you attach worth to your dreams, your ambitions. Maybe you attach worth to your past achievements. Maybe you attach incredible value to all the accolades and all the things that you have achieved for yourself. I attach, and still maybe for you, you attach worth to, to your stuff. Now, I'm not saying one way or another whether this is a good or a bad thing, but, but it just is. Some of us attach value to our stuff, our iPhone, our Apple Watches, our MacBook Pros. Notice it's all Apple products. The Apple products are valuable. Now, Windows probably, you know. And so, and so you attach worth to these things. Folks, I got news for you. When you attach worth to something or someone, that is what worship is. Worthship is putting worth and uh, value onto something. We will always worship something or someone. Now, listen, church, what or who we worship becomes critically important. What or who we worship determines whether you are a lost person or not. I, I love what Blaise Pascal, the brilliant 17th century French philosopher, once said. He wrote these words in one of his works. He says, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim, but that there was once in a man, once in man, a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. Sort of like Milton's paradise lost, right? 
He goes on and he says this, he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Another way of stating what Pascal was saying is there is a God-shaped vacuum in the soul of every person that no created thing can fill, only God can fill. No matter what you try to fill that void, that vacuum with, nothing can fill that vacuum because it is a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill, which makes God actually the ultimate object of worship. Uh, another uh, early church father, another brilliant theologian and philosopher, St. Augustine, put it this way. You may have heard of this quote. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless, might I add. Our hearts are lost until they find their rest in thee. You see, what Pascal and Augustine are trying to express is that a life without God is categorically, functionally, and operatively lost. A life apart from God, a life without God is like trying to find your way out of a thick forest without any navigational tool, without any guidance or help. You are hopelessly lost. What Pascal, what Augustine, what Jesus is trying to communicate to us is a life without God, you would be operatively and functionally living as a spiritually lost person. It's that simple. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say things like, and maybe you've heard this too, right? It wasn't until I found God that I found my purpose. It wasn't until I I started walking with Jesus that I discovered my true self, my true identity. It wasn't until I committed my life to Christ that I found an actual reason to live. I remember a season of my life, I I was rebelling against God. I I, I was fed up and I just kind of, I went crazy. Some of you know the story. I, I went to Korea for about three months, and I just, I, I, I went nuts. You know, I, I did everything that, that the church told me not to do. I, I did all of these things. And I remember coming home at 4 a.m. every night after partying and just getting, you know, after puking half of my guts out on the side of alleyway, coming, coming back to my room and laying in bed thinking to myself, God, is this it? There's got to be more to life than, than what I just lived through the last 12 hours. You see, when we start trying to fill our lives with anything apart from the living God, we live as functionally lost people. We feel lost. And for those of you who are of the faith, who are followers and identify as followers of Jesus, maybe you understand this, right? Like it wasn't until I, I, I discovered God's love and his purpose for my life that I actually came alive, came alive. That's what Jesus here in Luke chapter 15 is talking about when he's talking about the lost, the lost. Until that point of discovering who we are in Christ, we are just lost people. Now, in Luke chapter 15, uh, uh, what the word heard just, just presented the, the scripture. So we're not going to read through all of Luke chapter 15, but I do want to highlight a few things in Luke chapter 15. I know that I already spent about half of the message time uh, expounding on, on what it means to be spiritually lost and things of that nature. But I want to spend the remainder of our time just highlighting three things that I believe God is trying to communicate through Luke chapter 15 
as it relates to God's heart for the lost. As it relates to God's heart for the lost. The first is this. I'm going to go through this rather quickly because of our time here. Okay, so the first is this. God is drawn to the lost like a moth to the flames, like a kid to a candy shop. Like myself to my wife, I am drawn. You know, we, we God is drawn. He is helplessly drawn to the lost. He is hopelessly drawn to the lost. It, it might sound a little bit odd to think about God as helpless or hopeless, but when it comes to the lost, God at his core essence in his being, he is helplessly drawn to the lost. Do you know that this is the only point of the Gospels where Jesus drives home a point to this degree in this consecutive order? I mean, three times, boom, 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 what he's trying to communicate to the world is, hey, the lost matter to God. The lost deeply matter to my Father in heaven. God is deeply drawn to the lost. In fact, even before he goes into these parables, notice how the passage opens up. In verse 1, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. They were all drawing near. Now, that's an important concept that we're going to come back to in just a minute. But Jesus is just hanging out with a bunch of sinners. I want you to catch the picture. He's just chilling out with a bunch of outcasts, a bunch of sinners, a bunch of lost people, people who are unchurched, irreligious, people who are far from God, who have no knowledge of who God is. Jesus is just chilling with this group of sinners. In the midst of this, notice the response of the religious people, the church folks, the people who have a knowledge of God, people who know the law, people who know who God is, people just like you and me. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. He receives sinners and eats with them. Again, we're going to come back to that. We're going to tie that too with, with that first part in, uh, in verse 1. In verse 3, it says, So he told them this parable. So, that's a small little word that carries a great deal of punch. So he told them this parable. You see, this parable was a teaching moment for the religious people of that time. In other words, if you are here today and you identify yourself as a Christ follower, as a Christian, this parable is for you. This parable is for me. It's not for the lost people. Now, there are principles that we find about lostness and about what God feels about the lost, but he tells us this parable to us, the church folks. Now, remember what we said a couple of weeks ago. These parables that Jesus told were intended to serve as a what? As a mirror to shine, to reflect before us. And, and this is like Jesus saying, hey, I, I, I want you to know what my Father in heaven is like. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what God's kingdom is like. This is what my Father is like. I'm going, to put, I'm going to tell you a little story. And in so doing, I'm going to hold up a mirror before you and ask you, here's what God is like. Is this what you're like? I'm going to tell you this parable so that you can understand who God is, but I want you to understand the function and the purpose of this parable is not just to tell you, enlighten you on who God is. It's also to reflect before you, is this who you are? God is drawn to the lost. Are you drawn to the lost? God is relentlessly passionate about the lost. Are you relentlessly passionate about the lost? I want to go back to that little phrase of sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Would you know that God is not only drawn to the lost, but the lost are drawn to Jesus just as well? Now, church, I don't know about you, but I don't see too many lost people knocking on my door. Hey, Pastor Dan, I want to hang out with you. 
hey, can, can we go grab a beer or something together? Can we, you know, hey, let's, can we just hang out? Like, Dan, there's a great party down the block. Come, come hang out with us. There, I don't see a whole lot of that. I, I've got a couple of assumptions why that might be, but I started asking myself, why is it that the lost were so drawn to Jesus, and yet when I look at my life, can I just be honest for a minute? I don't see that same reflection. I don't see lost people looking to hang out with me, to spend time with me. So I, and I started asking why that is, and then I read verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes grumble. They might have been grumbling, but how many of you know they spoke the truth? It says, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And I thought, that's precisely it. Jesus received the lost and ate with them. In other words, Jesus seemed to genuinely enjoy the company of sinners. He seemed to genuinely enjoy spending time with lost people, with people who had no business of entering into God's kingdom, who had no understanding of who God was and what he was about. Jesus actually, see, a lot of us, we teach in the church, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? Like Jesus loves me. Jesus loves the world, for God so loved the world, right? He loved the world. He loves you. He loves people. Love, love, love. But how many of you know Jesus actually liked people too? It's a big difference, right? I, I mean, I love all of you, but I don't know if I could say I like all of you. All right. No, I do. I do. But, but how many, you know, right? Like you're like, I, I love people because I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I love people because I got the love of God in my heart, but I ain't going to invite certain people over to my house party or to my, to my dinner party over my home. Because quite frankly, I just, I don't enjoy the company of certain people. I don't like all people. Jesus here receives sinners and eats with them because not only does Jesus love the sinners, Love the lost. He is drawn, helplessly drawn. He actually likes to be around sinners and lost people. He actually likes. And, and, and let me tell you, you know, how many of you know, you know, in, in middle school, grade school, whatever, like, you know, you found out someone liked you, right? What was your, what was your instinctual response? Like, ooh. You're you telling me he likes me? I, and let's just be honest, before that moment, you didn't even realize he existed, right? But all of a sudden, your girlfriend comes around or your, your dude, your guy buddy comes around and says, yo, she likes you, man. And all of a sudden, you're like, I think I like her too. I, I, I don't know her. I didn't know she existed, but I think I might like him. I might like her. Why? What is that? Because you naturally tend to like those who like you. You see, Jesus was not only drawn to the people, the, the people who were far from him, people were drawn to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was drawn to the people who were far from him. See how this is cyclical? Now, now I want to, uh, let, let me tell you, people can usually sniff out likability. People can usually tell whether you genuinely care about them or not whether you genuinely like them or not. Inversely, people can usually tell when you're just treating them like a project. And folks, we in the Christian circles need to stop this. Where we treat people like a project. And when people sniff that out, guess what they do? They run. They run the other way because people typically don't like, they're not drawn to project managers, particularly when they're the project. They run. They run. And so I think that's why the lost were so drawn to Jesus, because Jesus 
the God of the universe was so helplessly drawn to the lost. If you get anything from Luke chapter 15, these consecutive back-to-back parables, it's this principle. God is passionately after the lost, which leads me to my second point. God is on a mission. God is on a mission. Friends, you ever lose anything? How many of us are infamous for losing stuff? Like your, your, your friend or your roommate's like, yeah, they done it again. Like he lost their keys. She lost her phone. You know, she lost, she can't find her bag and all this stuff, right? Like, you know, I, I mean, thank God. How many of you know can, can say amen to this? Thank God for find my iPhone, right? Like find my iPhone has saved me a million times. I'm always misplacing my phone. I can't find my phone. Just go into the app, my iCloud, whatever, find my iPhone, right? Now, losing things is incredibly frustrating. Furthermore, when you lose something valuable, it is even that much more frustrating. I have a, a, I have a pair of sunglasses that I paid about $400 for. You know, it's, it's got special lenses, prescription lenses, and all these wonderful things. And, and, and I've had them for years now. And, uh, and I remember I, I lost these pair of sunglasses one of many times. I, I'm always losing them, you know, like, and, and, and I, I remember my wife and I were running uh, errands and, and uh, I ended up leaving them at Target on one of the shelves at, at Target, like Target, the black hole of everything, your, your wallet, your sunglasses, your money, like, right? You go into Target and, and I left my sunglasses on a shelf there and I, I didn't realize in the moment until I got home. I got home, I'm looking for my sunglasses, I can't find it anywhere. I mean, I'm looking in all the places that I normally keep it in, and then some. I'm looking in places that it would never even be, like under the couch, under the refrigerator. I'm moving stuff out. I'm like, could, where could it be? Where could it be? You know, and, and I'm, I'm backtracking uh, all the places that I've been, and I hop in my car, grab my keys, hop in my car, and I go to every place that we were until I ended up in Target. There it was, the little brown pouch with my sunglasses right on the shelf at Target. You might say that I was on a mission to find my sunglasses. If you lost anything valuable, you know this. You scour the whole entire house. You scour your car. You you are on a mission to find that which is lost. And that's exactly what this passage is telling us. Look at the language that Jesus uses here and the way he tells these stories. In verse 4, he says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country? By the way, no shepherd in their right mind would do this. Leaving them completely vulnerable and open to attack. No shepherd in their right mind would do this. But know, know this, Jesus is trying to emphasize and drive home this point with this piece. Leave the ninety-nine in the open country so that he can go after the one so that he can go after the one that is lost until he finds it. He's saying God is on a mission to find that lost sheep. And then he goes to the lost coin in verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? Not casually, not passively, not when she's got the time of day. She seeks diligently until she finds it. Now that right there is a woman on a mission. And fellas, don't ever get in the way of a woman on a mission. Okay? Just stay out of the way. Take cover. You know, I'm, I'm speaking from experience, okay? That's just wisdom, all right? That, that's wisdom. Now, this woman was on a mission, and, and, and she, is, she is seeking diligently. And then finally, in the case of the lost son, notice what it says here. But while he, 
he, the younger son in the story, was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. By the way, this is what I did when I found my sunglasses. I ran to it. I embraced it. I kissed it. It was a magical moment. It was a, it was a good moment. But, it, but you almost wonder if the father was just sitting out, just waiting for his son, looking out the window. You know, he, he goes back into his, his inner quarters and, and he's after a meal. He looks out the window. Is my son coming back home? I wonder if my son's coming back home. And then alas, that one final inevitable day, when he comes, he is far off, a distance away, and, and the father runs out, embraces him, and kisses him. You see, in all three of these accounts, we see that God is not just passively waiting by for that which is lost to be found. How many of you know lost things don't just find themselves? It needs a seeker. It needs someone to seek after that which is lost. You've got to actually get up and look for it. In fact, the very message of the Christian faith, the gospel message, how many of you know this, is one of a special mission where God sought after us, not passively waited for us to come into the kingdom because we had no hope, no shot at that. The message of the Christian faith was one where God sought after us, where God pursued us with his love through the sending of his one and only son, Jesus, and Jesus himself was sent on a mission. His mission was to die on a cross, to forgive the sins of all of humanity, past, present, and future, once and for all, so that you and I can have meaning and purpose, not just here on earth, but we can have a purpose to spend eternity with him in the next life to come, when we are over and done with with this life. That is good news. That is what the mission was about. You see, God doesn't just have a heart for the lost. He desperately wants them found. And get this, the vehicle by which he seeks to accomplish that mission is the church. It's you and me. I mean, I, I, I don't know about you, but, but when I look at the 12 disciples that Jesus chose, it, I wouldn't have chose those guys, right? It's like if, if the hope of the world rested on the fathers of this Christian movement, and it, and it came down to Big Petey? Come on. I mean, come on. Pete, Pete, Peter had all kinds of issues. James and John, the, the guys who needed anger management, the sons of thunder, like, you know, Jesus, you sure you know what you're doing here? It's amazing who Jesus chooses to partner with and who he chooses to use to fulfill the mission of God here on earth. The primary vehicle by which he seeks to fulfill the mission. The mission isn't over. How many of you know that? Jesus' mission is over. He came to do what he came to do. But then he turns to us. What do, you, what do you tell us in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go to a church service. Read your Bible. Pray. Listen to a couple of podcasts when you have the time, you know. No, he, he doesn't say that. By the way, if you think I'm being serious, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. Matthew 28, at the very end, before Jesus ascends, he turns to his disciples, whereby we are his disciples. It extends to us. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. By the way, th this is why I believe in a multicultural, multilingual, multi-ethnic church. It's not because I'm Asian. Okay? I believe that because I believe that's what God intended. 
He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you, everything that you've seen me do, everything that you've heard me teach, I want you to now go and do unto others. And lo and behold, I will be with you till the very end of the age. This is the great co-mission, co-together with. This is the great co-mission. Why? Because we fulfill this mission with Christ. We fulfill this mission. He says, you can't, you can't, there's no way that you're going to be able to fulfill this, this mission on your own. You need me. And so lo and behold, I'll be with you. I'll be with you to the very end of the age. This is the mission that God has given us. And every once in a while, church, we've got to come back to Matthew 28 and ask ourselves, hold the mirror up against our lives and say, is this what I'm seeing in my life? Am I, am I making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you? Do I believe that you're with me all the way to the end of the age? Do I believe that? Am I seeing that in my own life? Or am I just going to church? Now, I love that you're here. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I want a packed house. I want every, every nation, every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord. I want us to be worshiping our God, exalting Jesus. But if all that happens in the church remains in here, man, something is terribly wrong. That's not what the church was intended for. God is drawn to the lost. God is on a mission, and he bestows that mission to the church, to you and me. Now, I want to look at this third and final piece. God is not only drawn to the lost. God is not only on a mission for the lost. This final point is God is overjoyed by life change. God is overjoyed when a lost person becomes found. In, in Luke chapter 15, we see two primary themes emerge. One is the obvious one, right? We spent like 80% of this message, 90% talking about it. Lostness, right? Lost. It's the parable of, of, of the lost stuff, right? The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. The parable is about lostness. But the second theme that we see emerging, so the two primary themes that we emerging, the second one is this. It is one of celebration. Celebration. And, and, and you know, one of the things that irk me is when I step into a church service or a church gathering of, where people of God and and, and they're just terrible at celebrating. You know, it's like there's no joy, there's no rejoicing. I mean, you know, it's like you, you would think people like, I, I got to tell you, because I've been a worship leader for a long, long time, right? Like, you know, over 20 years of my life, I led worship. And I remember there would be moments when I'm standing out there, I'm looking out. It's like people are watching cement dry, like paint dry on a wall. It's like... A, you, you understand that, that the Christian life is, a, is about celebration of what God has done. It's not, it's not about anything that happens up here. It's not about the music. It's not about the songs. It's about celebrating who God is and what he has done through his son Jesus for us. And it is only for that reason that we come together and we celebrate. Uh, listen, uh, again, I want you to notice what Jesus says here in verse 5, when he talks about the shepherd who goes after the one lost sheep, it says when he has found it, what does he do? He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, celebrating. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. 
Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents over than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is talking about a changed life here. One changed life is enough to throw heaven into a party tizzy. I mean, one changed life, one person who says, you know what, I'm turning from my ways of following the ways of the world and turning towards following the ways of Christ. Heaven throws a whole rager. I mean, it goes berserk over one changed life. Listen, someone, some, someone who realizes that they can't go on any longer without God is what we're talking about. There's a cosmic celebration. It, it, look at the woman who finds the coin. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors. By the way, the nature of celebration is corporate. Notice this. Don't you find it odd that like, I mean, I, I, I'll tell you, it's not in my nature. Maybe this is the Western kind of way of thinking, right? When I found my sunglasses, I wasn't pulling the target employees. Guys, I found my sunglasses. Celebrate with me. This is amazing. And yet the, the shepherd, what does he do? The first thing is, hey, shepherd buddies, come on. I found my lost sheep. Come on, celebrate with me. Hey, the, the woman calls up her, you know, the, the, sends a telegram. I don't know what they had. So, you know, like, come, come over my house. I want to celebrate with you. I found my lost coin. This is why we gather together every Sunday morning. It's not because this is what church history has done to all the ages in the past. We gather together because the nature of celebration is corporate. Because God has, as much as he has changed you, your personal life, we're coming together collectively as the bride of Christ and saying, God, thank you for what you have done for us. You are good to us. Not just to me, but you are good to us. And we celebrate together. This woman calls up her friends and neighbors. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angel of, of God over one sinner who repents. And then real quickly in verse 22, this is the, the lost son, parable of the lost son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and what now? celebrate. Let us eat and celebrate. Verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to what? Celebrate. Celebrate. And that's how I want to end the service here today. By celebrating. Celebrating by coming to the communion table. Coming to the table that is worth celebrating coming to the place where Jesus has broken his body and has shed his blood for us and saying, God, we thank you. We thank you for what you have done for us. We were so undeserving. We had no business of being found, but God, you were drawn to me. I don't know why, because I don't feel like I'm that special. I don't know why, because I, I'm, I'm broken. I'm I'm messed up. God, yeah, I, you do know that, right? And still, yet, you're drawn to me. That's the mystery of the gospel. That the God of the universe would be drawn to broken human beings just like you and me. But not only is he drawn, he is on mission, man. He is a missional God. It is who he is. He is after the lost. And by the way, you and I were all lost at one point. For some of you, it might have been a year ago. For others of you, it might have been 
10 years ago for others of you, you're like, I don't even know, I don't remember when I was found because I grew up in a Christian home. But there came a point where you had to make a decision for yourself whether you were going to follow Jesus or not. You came to that fork in the road. And maybe it was at a church service or maybe it was at a retreat. Maybe it was at some kind of function where you said, okay, Jesus, I'm done living my life without you. I want you in my life. That God-shaped vacuum in my soul, I want you to fill it. I'm tired of filling it with other stuff. I need you to fill it. That's the moment when you became lost and you became found. When you made that shift from being lost to found. And why does he do that? Because God loves to celebrate. He loves to celebrate. Like who in the gang? He loves to celebrate. He loves to celebrate when he sees people's lives changed. And that's what the communion table represents. It's not just pieces of bread and Welch's grape juice. It's about lives that were changed by the greatest act of love in all of mankind and in all of history when Jesus gave his life on a cross so that your life and my life can be changed. I don't know about you, but I think that's worth celebrating. Amen? That's worth celebrating.